This morning, as we continue our journey in this story, one of the repeating refrains that uh, we have said is that the Bible is like a mural that tells a single story. This morning's uh, portion deals with the video that you just saw, but we are only going to look at part of it. So if you didn't happen to read all of the section on Samuel and uh, Saul, then you have this coming week to read some more because we're going to divide this up into two parts and we're going to look primarily this morning at the story of uh, Hannah and Samuel. So as we as we look at this and we remember the context of what we're talking about, the book of Judges. The book of Judges was a time of of turmoil and chaos. It was a time of darkness. It was a time where God's people were continuing to um, adapt the practices of the pagan cultures around them. Uh, the culture was not getting the light of God to be converted. Instead, God's people were being converted by the culture. Uh, some things don't change. We have the same exact problem today. Whether you're a teenager or an adult, we are constantly being um, asked by the culture, if you will, to join them in what they are doing. And we have to choose. In this darkness, in this despair, um, we find the beauty of a couple of women that shine very brightly. Last week we saw as Zorin uh, taught us about Ruth and how Ruth in this time period, she shines as an example of a woman who comes out of paganism into the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ or just of Yahweh's good news in the Old Testament. And this woman, Ruth, who eventually is part of the line of Jesus Christ himself, the ultimate king, which Saul will not be, David will not be, and Solomon will not be, because Jesus is the king. And so Ruth was one of those ladies, but there's another lady, and her name is, is Hannah, and we'll talk about her in, in just a moment. So in this tumultuous time period, this time where where hope is lost and, and despair is prevalent and darkness is everywhere. I mean, you have to picture yourself being in this time period. When Ruth comes back from Moab with Naomi into a, a foreign and a strange land, and it's still the time period of the judges. Things are still a mess. And we get into the book of Samuel, and we're tempted to think oh, it's a whole new book. Well, it, it's not a whole new book. It's a continuous story of what's going on, and it's still the time period of the judges. And as we'll see in the very first chapters, it's filled with corruption. And this is, this is the, uh, the setting for Samuel, the question of hope. Where, where is the hope? What comes next? Where is the light in this darkness? The kinsman redeemer Boaz that Ruth had found points forward to a real redeemer of all of mankind, Jesus. And Hannah's story is also going to point forward both to your story and my story and what God is doing in all the world. So look with me at... 1 Samuel, if you will. You can see on the screen that the judges, the tribes of how they were allotted different lands. And each of these different areas, one of the 12 tribes was living in. And these judges, they, they came from these different areas. And throughout this time period, God raised them up when the people cried out in their cycle of sin. They would sin and then they would cry out to God. He would raise up a judge to save them and deliver them. And then they would go right back to the cycle, as you saw in the video and as we've talked about in the previous weeks. And, and so in this time period, 
we see that something new happens, that God brings something from nothing. And that's what we see in Hannah's story, that God brings something from nothing. Here we go. We're going to look at the first six chapters this morning. Chapter 1. There was a man from Ramathim Zophim in the hill country of Ephraim. His name was Alkina, son of Joraham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives, the first named Hannah and the second Penina. So we already recognize that there's something a little bit amiss. He's got two wives. We know throughout Scripture, starting all the way back in Genesis, that this took place with some regularity and frequency. Lamech, I believe, being the first one in Genesis to have more than one wife. Never was God's plan, but many things in Scripture that are recorded are not His plan. They're just narrated for the sake of us understanding what God does in, in the situation. So the two wives, the first named Hannah and the second Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah was childless. This man would go up from his town every year to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were the Lord's priests. Whenever Elkina offered a sacrifice, he always gave portions of the meat to his wife, Penina, and to each of her sons and daughters. When they would bring a, a sacrifice to the, the, it wasn't the temple yet, but the tabernacle at Shiloh, what would happen is the, the animal would be sacrificed, and the best portion, the fat portions as they're often called, they were burned up and offered to God. And then what was left of the animal, a portion went to the priests, that's how they stayed alive, okay? And a portion went to the family, depending on the type of offering that it was, all right? If it was a burnt offering, the whole thing's burnt up. But other types of offerings, God gets the best part, the priest gets a portion, and then the family eats a portion. And so they're eating this, and that's what he's referring to when he says that he would give um, to his, his wife this double amount. So here we are, picking up verse 5. He gave a double portion to Hannah, for he loved her even though the Lord kept her from conceiving. So who is it that is not allowing Hannah to conceive? It's the Lord. Now you can look at that in two different ways. You can look at it as God is specifically preventing this particular woman from conceiving. Or you could look at it in the sense that God is sovereign in control of everything, and since she can't conceive, therefore God is the one doing it. So in either case, there is this idea of a barren wife motif throughout Scripture. And so it's quite frequent that throughout Scripture, when a woman is introduced to as barren, you could pretty much guarantee that God is going to do something grand. That's why she's introduced. Now, this doesn't mean that every woman that was barren, God did this with. The ones in the story of the Bible are picked, okay, for a purpose to demonstrate what God is doing in the world. Her rival, verse 6, would taunt her severely just to provoke her because the Lord had kept Hannah from conceiving. Whenever she went up to the Lord's house, her rival taunted her in this way every year. Hannah wept and would not eat. Hannah, why are you crying? Her husband, Elkanah, asked. Why won't you eat? Why are you troubled? Am I not better to you than ten sons? But as we know from this story, he might have been better to her, but she still had to deal with the taunting of this other woman on a regular basis. The depression, the distress. In verse 9 it says, Hannah got up after they ate and they drank at Shiloh. Eli the priest was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's tabernacle. 
deeply hurt, Hannah prayed to the Lord and wept with many tears. Making a vow, she pleaded. And here's what she said. Lord of hosts, if you will take notice of your servant's affliction, remember and not forget me, and give your servant a son, I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and his hair will never be cut. That's a Nazarite. She's saying he'll be a Nazarite to you. Now, who's the most recent Nazarite that we've discussed? Samson. Yes. The baby boy that will be born, I'm spoiling the story for you, but Samuel will be the exact opposite of Samson, though both were Nazarites. While she was praying in the Lord's presence, Eli washed her lips. Hannah was speaking to herself, and although her lips were moving, her voice could not be heard. Eli thought she was drunk and scolded her. Now, it tells a couple of things. First off, he's judging incorrectly, and he is supposed to be the priest and judge of Israel at the time. So his judgment is off. Secondly, this also is potentially demonstrating what the people of the time were like. Drunk people coming into the temple. Obviously, if no drunk people ever came into the temple, he wouldn't have thought such a thing. He scolded her and said, how long are you going to be drunk? Get rid of your wine. No, my lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman with a broken heart. I haven't had any wine or beer. I've been pouring out my heart before the Lord. Don't think of me as a wicked woman. I've been praying from the depths of my anguish and my resentment. And Eli responded, Go in peace and may the God of Israel grant the petition you requested from him. May your servant find favor with you, she replied. And Hannah went on her way. She ate and she no longer appeared downcast. The first 18 verses of this portion of scripture, where we move from the problem to the praise, that's what is going on with Hannah. We have a problem, her barrenness. It's going to end in praise. So from the problem to the praise, this first section in the first 19 verses deals with the preparation. This is the preparation of what God is going to do in this situation. The story of Israel's waiting, they're waiting for a king, begins with a barren woman. Judges has been a, a setup, in a sense, to a king. The judges were okay in the sense that they were able to push back the oppressors, whoever they were, Ammonites, Moabites, whatever. They're able to push back those oppressors. But the judges were scattered all over in these 12 areas. The tribes were still a, a federation. They were not a unified nation. That's not going to happen until King Saul comes along and can start to bring them together. And then David and Solomon. And so they're a, they're a scattered group of tribes and they're supposed to be being led by God, by Yahweh. But they repeatedly rebelled. And so one of the things that you have to do as a reader of Scripture in the 21st century is you have to be able to distinguish between uh, what took place at the exact and actual time and what the authors of Scripture are telling you. Not that there's a difference historically, okay? This is historical events that are being recorded, but it's theological narrative. It's a story with a theological purpose, okay? The book of Samuel is not here just to fill you in on what happened one day with a woman that went to a tabernacle and prayed. That's not why it's here. 
It's here to tell you, to unfold the story of what God is doing in this nation and pointing to what God is trying to do in the world. It's theological story. It's theological narrative. And that's why it's here. And so this, from, this problem that Hannah has that will result in a few moments in praise and this portion of preparation is setting the scene. Some things that we have to realize about who is currently in charge, Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, his two sons. We're going to see in a moment um, that they aren't such good characters. In the contrast, the book of Samuel shows these great reversals in the contrast between the characters that it presents. And so in this preparation phase, these 19 verses showing the preparation, and then we move to verse 19. It says, the next morning, Elkanah and Hannah got up early to bow and to worship the Lord, and afterwards they returned home to Ramah. And then Elkanah was intimate with his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. Remember her prayer? Her prayer was, Lord, remember me. It's not that God completely forgot her, that didn't know she existed. It's, act in my behalf. Do something for me, please. And so when it says that God remembered her, without reading any further, you can know God is going to act on her behalf based on her prayer. It says in verse 20, after some time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son, and she named him Samuel because she said, I requested him from the Lord. Well, Alkina and all the household went up to make the annual sacrifice and his vow offering to the Lord. Hannah did not go and explained to her husband, after the child is weaned, I'll take him to appear in the Lord's presence and stay there permanently. Her husband, Alkina, replied, do what you think is best, stay here until you've weaned him. May the Lord confirm your word. So Hannah stayed there and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him with her, with her to Shiloh, as well as a three-year-old bull, two and a half gallons of flour, and a jar of wine. And though the boy was still young, she took him to the Lord's house of Shiloh. They slaughtered the bull and brought the boy to Eli. In verse 26, Please, my Lord, she said, as sure as you live, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this boy, and since the Lord gave what I asked I now give the boy to the Lord, for as long as he lives, he is given to the Lord. And he bowed and he worshiped the Lord. Jephthah in the book of Judges made a similar vow about whoever comes out of his house to be devoted to the Lord. Hannah made a vow, and God provided her with the boy. There's a lot of parallels in this book of Samuel with the book of Judges. When Hannah brings her, her boy up there, we have the proclaiming in verses 20 to 27 that I just read. The proclaiming of the good news that Hannah has been remembered. That God has done something from nothing. He has taken a barren woman and he has given her a baby. There's been a birth out of barrenness. There's been a resurrection. There's been life from death. A barren womb is a dead womb. And here God comes and resurrects and brings life into a place of death and deadness. This is not only about Hannah. This is about the story of Israel. This is about your story. This is about my story. That God comes in and he brings life where there is death. That God resurrects what is dead. Ezekiel has the vision of the dry bones. Similarly, God goes in and he resurrects a dead Israel and brings life. That is the same thing that God is doing here. What he's doing for Hannah is a microcosm of what he wants to do and will do for Israel, what he wants to do in your life and in my life. 
as this has been proclaimed here, Hannah will now move to her praise in chapter 2. And so Hannah prays. Her first prayer was a petition before God. Her second prayer is a praise to God. She says, my heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is lifted up by the Lord. That means her dignity has been returned. My mouth boasts over my enemies because I rejoiced in your salvation. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. She's giving the reasons for her praise because God has answered her prayer, because God has lifted her up from her place of low prestige. She has been exalted. Great humiliation precedes great exaltation. Hannah has been humiliated for years, and now she will be exalted. Not only will she have this boy, Samuel, who will be a prophet, a priest, and a judge for Israel, through whom God will reveal his word in a barren land where God's word has not been being revealed, but in addition, she will have five more children. The curse has been lifted. The barrenness is gone. For God has interceded. God has acted on her behalf. The sovereignty of God runs all through this prayer of praise. Verse 2, there is no one holy like the Lord. He has no rivals, unlike Hannah, who had rivals. Yahweh's kingship, Yahweh's protection, the rock. Verse 3, do not boast so proudly or let arrogant words come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge and actions are weighed by him. God knows what's in your heart. God knows who you really are. The bows of the warriors, in verse 4, are broken, but the feeble are clothed with strength. This is the great reversal that is going to continue through the book of Samuel. God is going to take the proud and humble them. He will take the humble and he will exalt them. Those who are full hire themselves out for food, but those who are starving hunger no more. The barren woman gives birth to seven, but the woman with many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and gives life. He sends some to Sheol and he raises others up. The Lord brings poverty and he gives wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and he lifts the needy from the garbage pile. He seats them with noblemen and he gives them a throne of honor. For the reason, for the foundations of the earth, the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. He has set the world on them. He is the creator. He is the sovereign. He puts things the way he wants. He builds the foundation. He brings down the, the mighty and he lifts up the lowly. He helps the needy. Reminds me of the Beatitudes. She finishes out in verse 9. He guards the steps of his faithful ones, but the wicked are silenced in darkness. For a man does not prevail by his own strength. Not by his own strength. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder in the heavens against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give power to his king. He will lift up the horn of his anointed. This begins with a praise of Hannah for what God has done in her own life, but it ends with the praise of what God is going to do in the life of Israel. Notice that in verse 10, it talks about the power to his king. There is no king yet. Already, in verse or chapter 2 of 1 Samuel, before a king has been brought about, Saul is not even in the picture yet. David is surely not in the picture. But we're already being told. And why? Because this is written after the fact. This is written after the events already unfolded. It's written with a theological note. The author knows what's coming. The author knows what's going to happen with Saul and David because he's writing it, writing it after. 
He will lift up the horn of his anointed. The king will be lifted up. What kind of king? A king of humility. A humble king. He'll be taken from a low place and be lifted high. Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus was humbled low before he was exalted on high. Great humiliation precedes great exaltation. The prophecy in verse number 10 will be unfolded throughout the book of Samuel and the rest of scripture, ultimately pointing to Jesus, the great high priest and king of all. The fate of the godly and the wicked are contrasted, just as in Psalm 1. We sang about it earlier. Who is planted by the streams of living water? It's the righteous. The wicked, though, they will not stand in the day of judgment. As Hannah also prays and praises here. In verse 11 it says, I'll kind of went home to Ramah, but the boy served the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. And so her praise, Hannah's song, in this passage of scripture, her personal joy and the public prospect of joy in Israel. Walter Brueggemann notes, he says, the power and propensity of Yahweh to intrude, to intervene, and to invert. The despised will become great in Israel. David ultimately will come through this. But here what we see in this praise of Hannah, in this prophecy at the end of it and the great reversal that is about to take place we continue in our story in verse 12 Eli's sons were wicked men and had no regard for the Lord this is the great reversal Eli's sons they are the priests the priests are the ones who are supposed to be setting the example they're supposed to set the tone for the country as go the leaders so go the country they're supposed to be instructing the people in the way of righteousness and Yahweh it says they are wicked they have no regard for the Lord they don't know God you have people that don't know God leading the nation. Well, where's the nation going to go? That is correct. To a place where they don't know God. Who's leading? Who's leading you? Who's leading your family? Who's leading our nation? If it isn't God, there's a problem. They had no regard for the Lord and they had no regard for the priest share of the sacrifice from the people. You say, well, what does he mean by that, Kevin? Well, he explains it. When any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come in with a pre-pronged meat fork while the meat was still boiling and plunge it into the container or kettle or cauldron or cooking pot, and he would claim for himself whatever the meat fork brought up. This is the way they treated all the Israelites who came there to Shiloh. Even before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man sacrificing, Give the priest some meat to roast because he won't accept boiled meat from you only raw. What's going on? I, I mentioned earlier that the food is to be given first to God. He gets the best portion, the fat portion. And then the priest gets some and the family gets some. The priests were stealing the food. The priests were stealing from the people. They were stealing from God even more so. Before the fat portions had even been burned up or cooked away, they were taking what they wanted. This is why later on we learn that Eli himself is judged. And it says he was a great man. He was a fat man. How did he get so fat? Off the fat of the meat that his sons were stealing from God. You can't steal from God and get away with it. This is how they treated all the Israelites. This wasn't a once in a week thing, month, year. This is how they treated everyone. They were corrupt. 
If the man in verse 16 said the fat had to be burned first, then you can take what you want. They would reply, no, I insist. You hand it over right now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. Not only were they corrupt, they were bullies. So the servant's sin was very severe in the presence of the Lord because they treated the Lord's offering with contempt. Verse 18, the boy Samuel served in the Lord's presence and wore linen ephod. Here's your contrast. Eli's two boys are wicked, corrupt, and don't know the Lord. Samuel serves in the Lord's presence and wears a linen ephod. In chapter number 2, verse number 11, it says this. In chapter 2, verse 18, it says this. In chapter 3, verse 1, it says again, the boy Samuel served the Lord in Eli's presence. In all those days, chapter 3, verse 1, the word of the Lord was rare and prophetic visions were not widespread. Proverbs says, without the revelation of God, the people cast off restraint and go amok. Without God's word, you will not live God's way. The judges are corrupt. The priests are corrupt. The people are corrupt because they don't have God's word, and they're not hearing God's word, and they're not living God's word. They're not heeding God's word. Back in chapter 2, verse 21, the Lord paid attention to Hannah's need, and she conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters. That's the five that I mentioned. Now, Eli was old, verse 22. He heard about everything his sons were doing, but he's not hearing too well from God. And how they were sleeping with the women who served the entrance in the tent of the meeting. He said to them, why are you doing these things? I have heard about your evil actions from all these people. Now, the report I hear from the Lord's people is not good. If a man sins against another man, God can intercede, intercede. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? But they would not listen to their father, since the Lord intended to kill him. By contrast, verse 26, Samuel grew in stature and favor with the Lord and with men. Eli's boys are wicked. They don't heed the call of God. They don't heed the call of their father. Samuel, on the other hand, heeds the call of God. Verse 27 is a prophetic condemnation on the house of Eli. Shortly, a man of God came to Eli and said, This is what the Lord says. Didn't I reveal myself to your ancestor's house when it was in Egypt and it belonged to Pharaoh's palace? I selected your house from the tribes of Israel to be priests. I also gave your house all the Israel fire offerings. Why then, verse 29, do all the... All of you despise my sacrifice and offerings that I require at the place of worship. You've honored your sons more than me by making yourselves fat with the best part of all the offerings of my people Israel. Therefore, this is what I say. Although I said your family and your ancestral house would walk before me forever, now no longer. I will honor those who honor me, but those who despise me will be disgraced. The days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your ancestral family so that none of your family will reach old age. Eli's life and the priestly line will be removed. He will lose the privilege that he was given by God, by God's choice only, to lead the people, to guide the people, and to provide the needed revelation for the people. <clears throat> he will lose it. Any man in 33... From your family that I do not cut off from my altar will bring grief and sadness. All your descendants will die violently. This will be the sign that will come to you concerning your two sons, Hophni and Phineas. Both of them will die on the same day. You want to know I'm not telling you a lie? 
Both your boys are going to die together on the same day. And then in 35, I will raise up a faithful priest for myself. He will do whatever is in my heart and mind. I will establish a lasting dynasty for him, and he will walk before my anointed one for all time. Anyone who is left in your family will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver or loaf. In other words, if anybody lives in your family, they will be in poverty. You right now are enriched. You are fat. You are wealthy. You're like the fat cows of Bashan and Amos. But you will be brought low, and you will be in poverty. And I will reject you, and I will replace you. This is one of the inversions. Eli will go, Samuel will replace him. Eli's sons will go, Samuel will replace him. Samuel's sons will go also, because unfortunately Samuel's sons don't follow in the ways of God either, and they will be replaced also. <clears throat> this is the priestly exchange that is taking place in this chapter, from chapter 2, um, 11 and following. And so in this, Samuel is going to be demonstrated through the book to be the legitimate one that God speaks through. He will become prophet, priest, and judge. He will not become king. Prophet, priest, and judge. So although you read the book of Judges and you think Samson is the last judge, he's not the last judge. Eli is actually called a judge. It says he judged for 40 years. He's also the priest. Samuel is also a judge. So Samuel is really the last judge, not Samson. So the other, the other Nazarite. The reversal of the arrogant is what takes place with this priestly exchange or reversal. It says that Eli's sons were great in sin, while Samuel was great. You can't catch that in the English necessarily, but that's what it says in the Hebrew. It has the same exact words to talk about both of them, but one is applied as an adjective to the great sin of Eli's son, other to the greatness of Samuel because he's a man of God. As Samuel grows and matures in his faith, under Eli, no less, God will begin to do a great work. In chapters 4 through 7, we will not have time to unpack all of these, but in chapters 4 through 7, we show the power of God's hand. You see, God was doing a great work. God came in to show himself strong, God to resurrect barrenness. <clears throat> but God's people need repentance. And God's people need to understand that God is not a genie. And that God is not some good luck charm. It's some superstitious art. Because that's how they've begun to treat him. In chapters 4 through 7, <clears throat> a couple of different battles occur. There's death and there's defeat. There's destruction. Eli's two sons will die. All on the same day, Eli's two sons will die. The ark will be captured. Israel will lose people in battle. And then Eli, when he hears about it, will fall over and die. Eli's son's wife will at the same time give birth to a child who she will name Ichabod, which means the glory of God has departed, and then she will die. God said the family would die and be removed. And he takes them out mostly in one day. The child that's born, Ichabod, the glory has departed. Now, let me, let me explain just a little bit what happens here as God shows his hand. <clears throat> there's, a, there's a really cool story in chapter 5, which out of chapters 4, 5, and 6, chapter 5 is, is the crux of it. It's the middle story. So the ark is captured. Now, 
What happened was the Philistines, okay, remember from Samson? Samson was fighting the Philistines, right? So same time period. So the Philistines were messing with the Israelites a lot, and, and the Israelites lost the battle. And so they figured, well, it's because we don't have the ark, so let's go get the ark. Well, they go get the ark, and the ark is brought up by Hophni and Phinehas. So corrupt leaders leading a procession with the ark of God to go lead us in battle. So as the corrupt leaders lead in battle, God says, I don't think so. And he lets them be wiped out. I mean, not completely, but it's a bad day. It's a bad battle. They don't do well. And the ark is captured. Now, when the ark is captured, Philistines rejoice. Because from the Philistines' perspective, they and their god, Dagon, have defeated and captured Israel and Israel's god, Yahweh. Now, when you read the text, it says very clearly that the Philistines had already heard what Yahweh had done to the Egyptians. They know about the power of Yahweh. But now they think they've captured him. So they take the ark to Dagon's temple. This is what they all did in the ancient Near East. Okay, You take the defeated god and you make him bow down, so to speak, in your god's temple. All right. So in Dagon's temple, there was probably tons of, of other gods. All, right? all hypothetically, supposedly bowing down to Dagon. Now, if you've never read the story, it's kind of funny. But there's more than just the funny aspect to the story. It says, <clears throat> after the Philistines in chapter 5 had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Ashdod is one of the five Philistine cities. They brought it into the temple of Dagon, and they placed it next to his statue. Why? Well, the statue of Dagon is this big statue. The Ark is going to be here. So it's like the, the Ark, God, Yahweh, is there before Dagon, bowing down to, to Dagon. When the people of Ashdod got up early the next morning, there was Dagon, fallen with his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. Yahweh bows before no one. Dagon will bow before God. And that's what happens. So they took Dagon. He's such an awesome God that they have to pick him up and return him to his place. But when they get up early the next morning, there was Dagon, fallen with his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. But this time... Both Dagon's head and the palms of his hands were broken off and lying on the threshold. God will serve nobody. God will be served by all. He is king of the universe. Only his torso remained, Dagon's. And that is why to this day the priests of Dagon and everyone who enters the temple don't step on Dagon's threshold. They're afraid they're going to get their head knocked off too. Now... The Lord severely oppressed the people of Ashdod, terrorizing and afflicting the people of Ashdod and his territory with tumors. Put the map up there where it says uh, the, the journey of the ark, please. When the men of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, The ark of Israel's God must not stay here because his hand is severe. His hand is severe. What happened to Dagon's hands? They got cut off. But you don't cut off God's hands. The hand of God is severe. The people had thought... That God is not in Israel. And in truth, God has left Israel. The glory has departed. In Deuteronomy, the curse on Israel said that if you finally do not 
get right with me. The final part of the curse is you will be exiled. Israel should be exiled right now. Peter Leithar argues that instead of Israel being exiled, God takes the punishment upon himself and exiles himself. So instead of Israel going into exile, the ark goes into exile. Just like Israel went into Egypt, Yahweh and the ark go into Philistine enemy territory. But just as Israel came out of Egypt with loads of treasure because they plundered the Egyptians, the ark will be returned with treasure. In this journey that you can see up here, okay, this journey that the ark goes on, God is up to something. God is not only resurrecting barrenness in Israel. God's plan for Israel all along was that they were to be a light to the nations. It says they were not, he will be. And so as the journey goes and God severely oppressed the people of Ashdod, so they wanted the ark gone. Get this out of here, which is eventually how it gets back to Israel. Because just like the Egyptians, finally, like, get these people out of here. They're killing us. And so God does the same thing with the ark. So the Philistines say, what should we do with the ark? <clears throat> the ark of Israel's God should be moved to Gath, another Philistine city. So the men of Ashdod moved the ark. After they moved it, the Lord's hand was against the city of Gath. The Lord's hand means his power. Okay? The power of God. The power of God's hand. He afflicted the men of the city from the youngest to the oldest with an outbreak of tumors. The Gathites then sent the ark of God to Ekron, a third city. But when it got there, the, the Ekronites cried out. They moved the ark of Israel's God to us to kill us and our people. So the Ekronites called all the Philistine rulers and said, Send the ark of Israel's God away. It must return to its place so it won't kill us and our people. For the fear of death pervaded the city, and God's hand was very heavy there. Heavy. The word heavy is, is related to glory. Eli was very heavy. He was fat and filled with his own glory. God's hand was heavy. Glory. The glory of God. The men who did not die were afflicted with tumors, and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. So it was there for seven months, according to chapter 6. It has a seven-month journey before it gets returned back to God. It gets returned back to God <clears throat> with treasures and offerings sacrifices, if you will, to Yahweh. The attitude towards God's ways reveals what you really think of God. I'm going to say that again. The attitude towards God's ways reveals what you really think of God. If you think God's ways are dumb, if you think God's ways are boring, if you think God's ways are unjust, if you think God's ways are stupid, then what you're really saying is God is those things. What you're really saying is that your heart and mind and soul are not captivated by God. Instead, the truth of the matter is you've been captivated, captivated by the pagan culture of the world. That's what happened to Israel. They were captivated by the pagan culture of the world. They were worshiping the Baals and the false gods. They were engaged in sexual perversion. It's no different in our culture. Our culture is filled with sexual perversion. Our culture is filled with idols. What is God doing? Sam, the book of Samuel is going to lead up to David, God's king, the man after God's own heart. But what is God doing? He's making them wait and wait and wait before they get this king. And the first king's not going to turn out so good, so we'll talk about him next week. But what is God doing? 
God is lifting up his own name. The people refuse to give glory to God, so God will give it to himself. God's glory will be manifested in the world. Habakkuk 2.14. The whole world will be covered with the knowledge and the glory of God. And so chapter 5, the heart of chapters 4, 5, and 6. God on his seven-month journey to reveal to the Philistine pagans, the Gentiles, that he is the one and only God. The reversal of pagan idolatry. The reversal of the, the pride the arrogance. There's a reversal of the, Il the Israelites and the Philistines. And at the end, in chapter 6, verse 10 to 16, there's a reversal of, from the non-rejoicers to the rejoicers as the ark is returned. <clears throat> the whole section in there with, with the ark traveling around. There's no Israelites speaking. The Philistines speak and God acts. That's what happens in the whole, the whole section. So in chapter 6, 10 to 16, the homecoming from exile, the glory had been exiled and is now returned. All the Philistines submit to Yahweh. The pagans are submitting to Yahweh, and his own people are in rebellion. Sometimes I think the pagans of today have more respect for God than the church of God has for God. So in summary, these first six or seven chapters show us the character of God, and they also hint at what the community of life for God's people is supposed to be like. You could put preparation for the king. Was that the last slide? It's not there. It's fine. Put the power of God's hand back up. <clears throat> the character of God <clears throat> and, and the community of life or the communing with God that is supposed to take place in our lives. As Hannah goes from barrenness to birth, the power of Yahweh is demonstrated. He inverts people's situations. The humble are brought low and the low are elevated. You have to ask yourself, how does this relate to you? Remember the diagram that Zoran showed us last week of how God comes in, the intersection that we've been talking about with the upper story and the lower story. And as God came in and brought a family of Bethlehem's life to connect with a pagan family of Moab, and from that he's able to pluck Ruth out of paganism and bring her into God's family. That's what God's doing with you and I. But it's more than that. What, what is God doing in our lives? My life right now has huge question marks all over it. Some of yours might as well. I have no idea what's going on. So can we believe enough like Hannah? Hannah, Hannah went for years putting up with the taunting, putting up with the inner turmoil. But she clung to her faith in God. She poured out her heart and she begged God. She refused to give up on the hope in God. And that is what characterizes God's people all through history, all through Scripture. <coughs> they refused to give up on the hope in God. That is the exhortation that 
After God's people are exiled to Babylon, that you find in the prophets, whether it's Jeremiah or Ezekiel, prior to the exile, you find it in Isaiah. Challenge and the call to number one, return to God, and number two, remain steadfast. I don't know how long you or I may remain in a period of bleakness and darkness. I don't know how long Hannah was. I don't know. I mean, the Judges covers hundreds of years. So the nation was under darkness, in a sense, for hundreds of years with, with time periods of, of some degree of light, at least in certain parts of the area, wherever the judge was removing oppressors at the moment. But Hannah's song, her praise, as I mentioned earlier, points forward to something more than just her own life. The prophesied king, at the end of it in verse 10, points forward not only to Saul or David or Solomon, but ultimately that King Jesus is the one who can reverse our life situation. But he may not do it right now. In this life, your fortunes may not be reversed, but they will be reversed when Jesus comes back. And so the wicked may prosper, but they will not stand in the judgment. And the righteous may be lowly and poor and humble, but they will be elevated and exalted. And death may appear to encroach and encompass everything. But it will be lifted. And life will be the norm in the new heavens and new earth. And that's the hope we cling to this morning. The hope that Hannah clung to. The hope that Hannah experienced. Pray with me. Father, we pray this morning. I just pray very specifically that not only might we cling to the same hope that Hannah clung to, that you are a God that remembers, that you are a God who is faithful to your covenant, that you are a God who intervenes and can reverse situations. But that we, Lord, will not just cling to that, but I pray that we would experience that. God, my prayer this morning is that you would reveal yourself to us. That you would work in our lives individually and corporately. To reveal yourself and show us that we might experience your glory and your greatness. That we might experience what Hannah experienced, a microcosm, a foretaste of what we will experience in heaven and your kingdom. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.